Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this new podcast series, we explore elements of American opera, production and reception histories, social contexts, historical valences, and more through our artist and scholar community. In this episode, LA Opera's Alicia Fox hosts chorus director Jeremy Frank for a discussion about the unique roots and qualities of American opera, as well as their shared excitement about Omar, an opera by Rhiannon Giddens and Michael Abels, opening at LA Opera this October. Tickets to Omar and the rest of LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. Hi, my name is Alicia Fox, and I am a fourth year young artist at LA Opera this coming season, uh, the 2022-23 season. And I am joined today by Jeremy Frank, the 2022-23 new director of the chorus. Chorus Chorus director, director, yes. And all around LA Opera rock star. Thanks, Alicia. That's very sweet of you. I'm super excited to chat today about American opera. I'll just kind of launch in. I think there's a misconception that is commonly held within our culture that opera is something other than American. And it's true that there's a lot of repertoire that's Italian. We see a lot of it in our own opera house, but there is also a really rich and very exciting, especially contemporary opera scene in America that we really have to be careful not to overlook because it's also something that's part of our own cultural birthright, if you will. Yeah, totally. There's so much new innovative rep that's coming out almost every season. There's at least one new commission. There's several workshops. There's places like American Lyric Theater. And it's not very much so talked about. I feel like they they come and they go. And so I'm really excited to be having this conversation. Yeah, and it's also kind of timely because this season, as you know, we are co-producing the new opera Omar by Rhiannon Giddens and Michael Abels, which, as I'm getting to study it and learn it, is a really powerful, beautiful, and also um, ultimately hopeful piece, which I'm really excited about. Um, I I wonder if it might be interesting um, to talk because you and I had had a conversation earlier about how we're both sort of unlikely people uh, to have entered the opera world. Um, Me, based on where I'm from, and I think for you, maybe too. Yeah, I agree. I feel like we we came to it differently, but sort of similarly. I was not supposed to be an opera singer. I don't think anybody ever envisioned that for me or any kind of singer, really. My family is kind of musical, but more in the gospel church sense. We're from Queens and Mm-hmm. The high arts are not necessarily uh, popular in my part of Queens till still to this day. I just kind of fell into it through high school when I went to the fame school, uh, LaGuardia, yeah. and they started teaching us art songs. And I was a very dramatic little preteen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and here I am so many years later, still being a very dramatic being. But um, <laughs> can I ask, because I don't think I've ever known uh, in the years that we've known each other. How did you get into the fame school? That sounds so fancy to me. Ooh, well, it's really not that fancy. <laughs> Everybody can audition for uh, LaGuardia, but it is technically a specialized high school. So you have to have 
certain kinds of grades and then you have to take a, a special specialized high school test mm -hmm. and in LaGuardia's case you also have to pass the audition so you got to have all three and then you might get in if they have room it is a pretty popular uh, school and program in general yeah um but I actually didn't want to go I didn't want to go I wanted to go to like some random high school in Queens where all people and little preteens that I knew were going to be and huh I'm so glad that my guidance counselor and my mother looked at each other and said, this is foolish. <laughs> oh, this wow. is such a better opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And was it that moment that sort of like got you excited about opera that you were like, I'm going to maybe think forward in that direction? Or was it later as you continued to study? I think it was later as I continued to study. I feel like when I was first introduced to it, I found it cathartic and as a, a really therapeutic way to express myself, which I hadn't had before, mm -hmm. but I didn't really think of it as a career choice because nobody in my family would consider it a career choice. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until a donor took me to see a critical at the Met that I was yeah. like, oh, oh, <laughs> this yeah. is what we want to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it was amazing. magical. It was <laughs> magical. And what about you? Your Your whole story is... Yeah. Very, very interesting. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, I, I often tell people in conversation that there's really no reason why I should be a classical musician at all based on where I'm from. Uh, I grew up in eastern Montana in a very small community of around 5,000 people and very isolated from any nearby towns. It's a three and a half hour drive to any city larger than 100,000 people. It's nearly a 12-hour drive to any metropolis of more than a million people. And while there are some small opera companies now in Montana, they weren't really when I was growing up. So I just, and, and I'm not actually even really sure uh, what why I liked music so much, but I liked the stuff that my parents listened to, which was not classical. And then uh, when I was a kid, I walked by a piano at some friend's house and started pressing the levers and was hooked by the idea of just being able to make music that way. So I got piano lessons from a really solid, really wonderful person, Marsha Ingebrigtsen, who was my grade school music teacher from grades one through six. And then she became my piano teacher and she was super generous. My lessons were $7 an hour in 1993. I mean, I feel like I should write her some checks right now for, for back pay. What I was lacking, what I wasn't able to get and, and have slowly accumulated over the years was any kind of um, super formal training in classical music and the kinds of repertoire that other kids who were in pre-conservatory programs would have just taken for granted. There were times in my life where I saw that as a real hindrance, but also opera is such a strange art form. It, it's so all-encompassing. It requires so many moving parts and different aspects and especially American opera, you know, we, we unfold all different kinds of music influences. So in some ways, being the kid who at 12 started being a church organist at my church and being the same kid who was playing for high school chorus and singing and playing French horn and being in the musical because there were so few kids who were interested in music, it was, I was able to really have a lot of experiences. And that I think um, comes 
really in handy now in the kind of career that you and I have, because you have to yeah. really, in a lot of ways, think on your feet and be able to synthesize a lot of moving parts. <laughs> Definitely. There's always so much going on and that's starting at the prep all the way through to the shows. I don't know if mm -hmm. anyone has uh, any idea, but Jeremy is often back behind the stage during the shows, as in Aida conducting the chorus, making sure that the, the band of trumpets is all in sync with <laughs> the maestro and, and running back and, and during tech and production times, just running around and being there. And, and it's, it's all very involved, very complicated and uh, very... <laughs> big moving ship with yeah. many moving parts. Uh, but and you did you did mention the influences of other things within opera. And yeah. I'm wondering what kind of roots do you sense in that? It's like French and Italian and German operas that have influenced American opera. Well, you know, um, if you think about the birth of the Metropolitan Opera in New York, for instance, toward the end of the 19th century, in a lot of ways, it's possible to view the American operatic experience as this thing that we've imported from Europe. And at first we did. And in some ways we still do. Our, if you want to call it the canon or the canonical repertoire, that does look like a lot of European pieces. But fortunately, that is getting bigger and bigger and more expansive as time continues to go on. And it was Dvorak who said when he visited America toward the end of the 19th century that America's uh, unique richness of the African-American experience and musical uh, vocabulary coming from spirituals, coming from gospel music even back then, um, was something that was unique and quintessentially American, actually. I wish our people had done better by that tradition for a lot longer. You can point to, again, the Met, actually, and it's not just them. Any opera company would have acted with this amount of racism in the early 1900s. But a very uh, beautiful composer, William Grant Still, for instance, just one of many, who was an African-American composer and prolific and writing beautiful pieces, poignant pieces, who had his stuff submitted to the Met multiple times, three times, I think, and was rejected flatly each time. Whereas that kind of rejection happened in the classical realm, that doesn't mean that our country's inheritance of that tradition didn't exist. It just filtered into different kinds of music, like jazz, or music that straddles a couple different worlds that is influenced by jazz or takes on that kind of flavor, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. I feel like growing up, I always would hear that musical theater is kind of the secular yeah. gospel of the world. And yeah. now when I think about the difference between musical theater and opera, I mean, there's there are great differences. And, and the importance of, of the voice over the acting is mainly mm -hmm. what I consider. But the English and American opera compared to it, it's actually not, not so different, especially when you consider like a Sondheim mm -hmm. or something like that, the higher kind of crossover kinds of musical theater pieces. There's a lot of comparisons to be drawn in, and it could all come stem from what some people now consider to be America's true art song, which is the spiritual. Yeah. And all those things came together 
like America is, a melting pot of glory. Yeah. You were talking about musicals and especially those, uh, as we refer to them sometimes, the golden era musicals like the 1940s, 1950s, big shows like Carousel or Oklahoma or Showboat or any of those. Now you are at least equally likely to see those produced by an opera house with quote unquote, legit singers. All of, all of these singers are legit singers, yes. you know, but singing with a more classically operatic technique or more robust singing, unamplified. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times recently within the last two weeks about a production of Oklahoma and a production of The Sound of Music. And I think the Oklahoma is sort of a deconstructed kind of postmodern take on Oklahoma. It sounds fascinating. Ooh. Yeah. I'm so excited to hear that there's new developments coming in the musical world for us. It's always very encouraging to see all these various takes on all pieces that have already been created mm-hmm. or themes and and across the genres. I've been very very excited for works like um Ricky Eden Gordon's new Intimate Apparel that yeah is kind of being run like a musical theater, but is absolutely an opera in composition and and vocal demands. Um, However, they're doing it, or they were doing it eight times a week, which is musical theater, right? It's crazy, (laughs) insane for an operatic company. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's it's a beautiful work and there's, there's a lot of new pieces that I think lend themselves more towards towards innovation in American opera than just sticking with the standards, though we love our standards. Standards are standard for a reason. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity to still interact with those pieces and take them in and enjoy and appreciate their beauty. Also to reconsider a lot of the um, racist, sexist, misogynist themes in some of those pieces and reinvestigate them. But with new pieces, it's not like we're choosing just bubblegum ideas to explore, but it lets us be able to look at hard stories like some of the mm-hmm. classical repertoire is um, in uh, stories that haven't been told yet and maybe unpack with more nuance and more being able to appreciate lots of points of view or or appreciate stories from people whose stories haven't been really represented before. And yeah. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm very excited about Omar this season too. For those of you who have not yet read about Omar, um, which is happening in LA in October, I think, we start yeah. rehearsals in September. Omar Iqbin Said was a 37-year-old Muslim scholar in Senegal. And he and most of the people in his village and family members were uh, swept up in this raid and brought across the Middle Passage and enslaved in and near Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, because Omar himself was a a Muslim scholar, he was literate and wrote, read and wrote uh, Arabic. And from him, uh, he was encouraged um, ultimately to write his own autobiography. And so we have this amazing, like mind-blowing firsthand document, uh, this firsthand autobiography of what his experience was like. And all of that has been, you know, turned into an episodic opera that shows different, different chapters of his experience in different moments. And at the end, becomes a very 
hopeful message that by telling your own story, your legacy can live on and influence others, even though one would assume that Omar's legacy would have been something that was very cruelly uh, suppressed. And certainly there's tons of cruelty and, and just the idea that people enslave each other is so inhumane. It's, it's repulsive, but uh, for such a hard story to tell, I think people are going to feel really moved uh, by the ending of this piece. Yeah, it's it's always important to shine light on these important subjects that can be very uncomfortable, but these stories are indeed needing to be told. Yeah. And there was something that you said about seeing new works through a new lens and bringing that forward. I feel like you worked on uh, M. Butterfly with Michael Sum, yes, Michael Hawk. Yes. That, that just came to mind when you were when you were talking about, you know, just the way that modern composers are taking older themes and, and giving them new mm -hmm. realms to live in. And it was it was a very interesting piece to read about. Yeah, it is a fascinating piece. It's being performed at Santa Fe Opera this summer. M. Butterfly is based on actually a play that became a movie in the 90s. I actually remember it from my college years. I sort of scandalously saw it on cable and was it melted my brain because I, did, at that point, didn't know Madame Butterfly. And here is a story about a French military guy in China, I think. And he, he goes to the Chinese opera and he meets and falls in love with the leading player who is singing Madame Butterfly, um, the Puccini. And what we find out later is the person that he falls in love with is a trans woman. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of turns in this story and lots of heartache to go around. And one would assume that M. Butterfly herself is the person who is actually carrying on the spirit of Butterfly. And as it turns out at the end, it's really Rene himself who is... Uh, who who takes his own life in desperation for lost love and betrayal. So anyway, yeah, a new a new take on on something. And in fact, the piece itself quotes Puccini's Butterfly quite extensively. And so at times you feel like you're you accidentally got dropped right into the middle of Act One, the end of Act One of Butterfly. But then it swirls into this other music that tells a, a, the rest of the story and a quite different story. Yeah, it is stunning music. And I, I'm interested to hear when you've seen it, uh, you're going to see it soon, right? <laughs> yeah, next week. <laughs> <Jennifer. laughs> I hope that it, it goes well. I'm sure that it will. Yeah. The subject matter and, and the representation that has been recently just been rolling out in, in our operatic field through these composers has been really, really heartening to see trans rights and BIPOC rights and all those things. It, it's they're just such important topics. And I actually didn't know that M. Butterfly was a play first or film first. That's that's very intriguing. I um, it's a good watch, actually. I, I revisited it when Michael yeah. and I were um learning the role of Rene quickly. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a product of its time, the early 90s, in the way that it looks a bit, but it's a it's a good watch for sure. Yeah. Have you ever seen or or heard of the Paris is Burning? I have not. 
So Paris is Burning is a film that is based on the AIDS crisis and Oh, I feel embarrassed that I don't know this. No, actually. don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's going to an, <laughs> we're going to an opera land. We are. <laughs> it is probably not, I, I'm not so sure where they are in the creative process of this, but there is an opera that was written uh, called Legendary by Joseph Rubenstein, and it was basically starring a trans woman who is living her life during this hectic time in the 70s and just like trying to survive with her tribe of the house extravaganza. It's a real story, and I feel like that is something that is unique to American opera in today's day and age. There's there's so much real experience, not so so much fiction. There is definitely obviously still fiction, but just the connection to the real life. Yeah. And you're triggering me to remember, you know, one of the uh, directions that American opera went in the 70s and 80s, both with Philip Glass, but especially with the brilliant John Adams. You know, if we look at three of Glass's operas, Einstein on the Beach, Achnaten, and Satyagraha, which I am proud to say LA Opera is one of the only companies in the entire country that have mounted all three. And they were (laughs) some of the highlights of the last 10 years of opera at LA Opera, if I do humbly say so myself. But each of those three pieces takes on a person. Each one is a meditative exploration of Einstein, of Martin Luther King Jr., of Akhenaten himself. Uh, an ancient Egyptian pharaoh. So in two of those three cases, we're looking at contemporary people being explored in the art form of opera. Adams took it even farther with pieces like Nixon in China or Dr. Atomic. In music history, I learned, and I'm sure you did too, that we sometimes refer to those operas as news operas because Mm -hmm. they were taking their point of departure right out of the headlines and not headlines from 60 years ago, but stuff that was contemporaneously happening. And I think it's a a fascinating way for um, this big genre to make comments on society rather than only having to tell stories from long ago, far away that have a a resonance with our times. That can bring in new audiences and and have more people Mm -hmm. feel like they can relate to these things. And I, yeah. So proud of LA Opera. Go team. Actually, you just said finding connections to be able to relate to people. Not to just talk about Omar or keep bragging on it, because, but it is really a wonderful piece. And I think one of the things that uh, works really beautifully about it is that it's composed by two people, by Rhiannon Giddens, who's a genius, and Michael Abels, who's another genius. <laughs> <laughs> Rhiannon is probably one of the most famous folk people, folk singers right now. I just heard an article on her today on NPR about um, how she's finally able to come back to performing and has taken over the reins for Yo-Yo Ma for the Silk Road Project. Fascinating stuff. But, you know, she's she is a banjo player herself. Her partner is a pa- banjo player. They incorporate that as a folk instrument, not just of Appalachia, but stretching all the way back to it being really an African instrument. There's a quote from her in one of the articles about Omar being put together and coming together. And there is not actually an 
a banjo in the orchestra for Omar, but she said that's because she's using the entire orchestra as a banjo. Yes, having only sung a, mm. an aria from it, uh, yes. I sing an aria from it for with Michael Abels um, for a, a Q&A conversation that he was having. Michael Abels was discussing how he recomposed this piece specifically so that it could incorporate um, even though it's a, like a almost a piano vocal score, because mm -hmm. we're not going to have a whole orchestra for a small little opening aria debut, mm -hmm. but he did get a violinist. And yes. the effect of just having that additional instrument, I am so excited to hear what this full orchestra yeah. is going to sound like, because it was it was getting under your skin kind of kind yeah. of feeling like he Michael does write that way quite frequently. It's just something that kind of moves you and it, it really gets under your skin. And I, if this was just one three minute ditty in the opera, I can't imagine what the whole piece will come together to be with the full orchestra and the yeah. costumes and oh, just the I was glory of I opera. was <laughs> totally struck by that too and um based on that conversation at the broad stage that I saw you in and him talking it's my understanding that he did a lot or, or sort of the bulk of the orchestration which makes sense he also mentioned during that Q&A and it's a very interesting point because of course we know Michael Abels for his film scores for Get Out for Nope, which just came out mm -hmm. this week, last week, sometime this last month. Last week, last week. Yeah. And Us, that's mm -hmm. right. And he said, you know, in some ways, it is a total no-brainer that somebody who writes film music should be somebody who writes an opera because there's such an overlap of skill set, of pacing sure. and creating drama, creating sound worlds, thinking in really big scope. It's really true. For sure. I mean, Corngold was is like their grandfather. That's in film exactly score, and we right. Just, we love to hear it. <laughs> That's exactly right. All of his pieces are are so 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 incredible, and you know, give again that sense of just bringing in the new times and incorporating new works, and and how kind of opera is the the base point, the jumping off point for a lot of other art forms, whether people know it or not. And American opera, oh, yeah. the timeline is 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 quite interesting. I feel like there's kind of a, a big jump between what was contemporary in like the early 1900s and then the low and now. Yeah. Is, almost every year there's a new opera. Yeah, I think some of that has to do with history, actually. The world wars, of course, you can never understate how how massively that completely changed the world. And in classical music, especially after the Second War, there was a huge movement um, for classical music to reflect sort of brutality, the brutality of the human experience. And, and things became really cerebral. And a lot of classical music kind of ended up uh, in academia and not necessarily in the opera house. And some mm -hmm. of the biggest projects from the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, let's take, for instance, uh, Barber's Vanessa, which I love as a piece. It's a beautiful work. It's a beautiful work. But, you know, it doesn't get played very frequently anymore. No. And I don't know if it's, its themes are just of a time and place that don't resonate the same way. It was never probably accepted in academia the way that some other things there were, but those don't translate to the opera house either. But um, 
so then, so that's that chapter of where things kind of went dark for a while. And you reminded me the other day when we were talking in preparation for this conversation that houses like Houston uh, had for many years a tradition of premiering a new work every season. And they're not the only ones. And they don't, I, to my knowledge, they're still not on a every season new, a new piece schedule now. But more places, LA Opera, San Francisco, The Met, are commissioning new works and adding to the repertoire. I think it's easy for people to get overly critical about new pieces if they're not immediately successful. And it's not fair, folks. You got to <laughs> yeah, give it a right. chance. <laughs> I mean, not, certainly not all of the pieces that were written in the other periods of opera were immediately successful. And you know as well as I do that we can point to dozens, probably hundreds of pieces that were kind of failures from even well-known composers. Meyer, yeah. there's so many of these works that were just went away or completely bombed and yeah. then had some revitalization in like yeah. um, in more recent times, like in the 50s. And, and that's that's all very interesting. But you said something about um, the new houses are they are creating and com commissioning new works pretty frequently. Santa Fe does this. I think mm -hmm. they do it every season and LAO and, and so many other companies. But where do those operas go? There's, <laughs> it's kind of, it's unfair. I don't know if this is just the way it is. And because we are currently living it, we don't experience it how, say, Mozart would have experienced it, where the piece comes, it gets a little bit of attention and then it goes away for a time yeah. or it gets revitalized after he dies or something. Yeah. And maybe that will be the truth for American opera as well. But as it stands right now, I can think back 15 years and remember only one or two operas that are still in the rotation. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually just exactly um, taking inspiration from what you just said, one of those pieces that we can point to is uh, Florencia and el Amazonas by Daniel Catan. Wonderful guy, big friend of LA Opera and we um, commissioned his work Il Postino and mm -hmm. sadly we lost Daniel several years ago very suddenly and he passed mm -hmm. and I personally maintain that his pieces would have stayed with the opera world anyway but um, I think it's true his early passing has uh, hopefully cemented them in the repertoire in a way that not every piece enjoys the, yeah. the possibility of doing that. It's true. I mean, even the the most popular of the American operas, Ghost of Versailles, is pretty mm -hmm. pretty popular by uh, Gian Corleano, mm -hmm. but it doesn't get performed very much. You're right. They should be given more of a chance because yeah. they are moving in. And I feel like, not to toot <laughs> LAO's horn, but I think Omar will be one of those pieces, similar yeah. to the way that um, Fire Shut Up in My Bones is kind of sweeping the states yes. right now. It's just the important subject matter and the right time. Yeah, it's a gorgeous piece. I, I We saw it in uh, on the HD transmission from the Met uh, for mm -hmm. their season opening. And it was one of the most powerful works I've witnessed as an opera lover. And mm -hmm. um, I'm eager to get a chance to work on it someday, fingers crossed. You mentioned sure. Gosa Versailles, which of course was commissioned by the Met for their 100 year anniversary. It was a piece much like, I suppose we could compare it in some ways to Rossini's Viaggio a Rems, which mm -hmm. was written for a coronation of an emperor. 
king, emperor, whatever they had back then. Um, but because of it, no expense was uh, was wasted. Like anything that needed to go into that piece went into the piece. And because of it, both Viaggio has this massive cast and so does Gosa Versailles. Now, mm -hmm. it was thrilling to get to perform that in 2015 in, at LAO and we won mm -hmm. Grammys for it, which we're very proud of. But it took a special set of resources to be able to put together a piece that has those kind of requirements and demands. Worth mm -hmm. it, worth it. Mm -hmm. But you can see why sometimes then to balance that out, it might be useful to do like a Britain chamber opera uh, yeah. that has an orchestra of 13 and a cast of six, you know? <laughs> yeah. Britain's works are also not American, but just American. fantastic. <laughs> yes, truly, truly brilliant and English brilliant. language. So they feel yeah. immediate to us because it, they're sung in our mother tongue. Absolutely. Corleano and yeah. it goes to Versailles. This past season into at Santa Fe, the, his second opera went up, yes. Lord of Cries. And a couple of uh, the LAO young artists were a part of that season, including myself. And it was so interesting. It has been an interesting couple of years for me personally, working with these um, new composers directly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Abels, for instance, and John Corleano himself, Joe Rubenstein. There's been quite a few. And I was also in a, a work called The Long Walk a couple of years ago that mm -hmm. was commissioned by American Lyric Theater. And that composer was Jeremy Beck. It's a kind of incredible. I, I can totally understand now why the rock stars of, of the past are the rock stars of the past. You just got to have a certain kind of personality to have that grandiose of an idea and put it forth and orchestrate yeah. it and make it move people. And these works are really getting it done. It does seem like a, a grand undertaking for a lot of these works just because of the special effects now and things that we are used to seeing in film yeah. and, and how opera feels so much like that to people who aren't accustomed to it, only it's the other way around, really. You just mentioned something that triggered a thought. If you and I are working on Wagner, let's say, or Verdi, or other composers from even earlier, I can lie to you and say that I've got the red phone at home and I can pick up the receiver and commune with those composers and tell you <laughs> what their original intentions were. But really, the process of excavating those works to try and find what the quote-unquote truth of them is, is something that we train to do, but it's tricky yeah. because we have to find something that honors the piece, the text, your physical instrument, your soul, all of those things simultaneously. There's an added element when you do works by composers who are still living, and that's that they can come and tell you what their intentions were. It's both a really useful resource, but also a really important and at times daunting responsibility to do well by these creators. Absolutely. It is both exciting and daunting because you're right, we, can, we have no crystal balls. We can't mm -hmm. think back and, and know exactly what these composers were thinking, except for the few that wrote out very explicitly everything yeah. that they want. And I, I do believe that there are quite a few newer composers who are taking that to heart because you can't 
travel with your piece. You're not always going to be there. Hopefully, if your piece gets picked up, you're going to yeah. have to have these margins for people. And I think that they, things are getting even more specific, mm-hmm. which can be great or horrible. But yeah. you know what? It's live theater and we're all going to learn it together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think I think, too, you know, now that we live in this era where everything can easily be recorded, we have other kinds of documents that witness to how pieces came together and what they're about and how they flow or what the impact is. People didn't record this way until the technology existed. So most of our repertoire predates that. Now we can know what famous conductors thought of Mozart from the 1950s or 60s or 70s or now. But no no one knows for sure what any of that sounded like. Conversely, we all know what uh, a wonderful composer like Matt O'Coin's pieces sounded like because they're recorded and they're available to us. Exactly. And I am so happy for Matt and his whole, like the whole going across the med and just the the response of the people uh, uh, from this piece. I feel like there were, um, in the past few years, the Met has produced a couple of Nico Muli pieces. Yes. And to a mixed bag of responses, but mm-hmm. one work that he put out that I thought should have probably had a lot more acclaim and note was Two Boys. Yeah, it, I it wondered if you were so going to mention recent. that. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. It's such a, a piece that relates to millennials and Gen Zs, Gen X, almost anybody who grew up in the technology age, Mm -hmm. um, but is another one of those American works that is not necessarily happening right now. Hopefully, maybe in the next few years, because it is, unlike some of these other American operas that, like you said, they do take a lot of resources to create. Now, with the way that things are going, I just saw something at the Hollywood Bowl, the third act of Valkyrie, where they had a whole big green screen instead of sets and costumes. And you were watching basically like a virtual reality version of this world while listening to live theatrical voices. And that is something that honestly could lend itself very well to American works and for smaller companies that are trying to put on these these works that, and that, that's how these works are going to continue to live and thrive and grow. Yeah. We have our big companies like LAO presenting them and go forth. Well, two things. One is, of course, this Valkyrie that happened just recently at the Hollywood Bowl is the brainchild of Yuval Sharon, brilliant guy, and assisted when we were putting together the ring cycle at LA Opera. And even then, before he created the industry, before all of this stuff, it was it was clear that you were in conversation with a really smart guy who is going to um, do some really cutting edge things. So that's that's really exciting. And and I think he has a way of helping to make opera happen in the most improbable of places. And then after you've experienced it, you think, how could it be any other way? You know, yeah. and it, and it um, really causes us to open our minds to what opera is and where it can happen, who can be part of it, all of that stuff. We've referenced a couple times that opera is uh, even regular opera, even small opera takes a lot of resources. Big operas, mm-hmm. ambitious operas take even more. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons why we at LA Opera uh, and all of the opera companies of the world are 
entering into co-productions more frequently, it's really a win-win situation because it helps share the burden between more than one place to be able to bring something to life. But also to answer a bit of a question that you brought up earlier, it also guarantees at least a little spate of initial performances where things uh, can get shown to more people, but also where pieces can in some ways get workshopped and improved or tweaked or streamlined, edited uh, with every iteration. Yes. Wasn't Vanessa uh, revised a couple of times once? I should know it, but I don't. I don't know. I know that it was revised, but I'm not sure if it was once or twice. And and that that seems totally appropriate. I, I feel mm -hmm. like there's so many works that um, honestly are fantastic source material, are fantastically written for the voice. But in today's day and age, a lot of newer composers are used to hearing amplified voices. Right. They're not necessarily being trained to work with operatic voices because it is such a niche field and we're still singing mm -hmm. things from 500 plus years ago. Right. So what ends up happening is a lot of these works get re-workshopped and then they'll just, you know, change the orchestration a bit to make it mm -hmm. more comfortable for everyone involved, the list, the singers and the, and the yeah. orchestra and, and the conductor. And it, it does all of those things are important in the longevity of a piece. Sometimes those changes happen too for practical reasons, like mm. there's a reduced orchestra version of Gosse Versailles actually, um, which enables it to be performed in smaller theaters like Wolf Trap Opera, where they can't fit the size of the big orchestra, but they can fit the smaller one. It's just the way of the world. We have such mm -hmm. a large variety of houses at this point in, mm -hmm. in the States and globally. But yeah. as far as American operas go, there is kind of a, a bit of a divide. I think that there are some summer companies who are like Chautauqua Opera does do their best to do an American opera mm -hmm. every mm -hmm. season. There is one that I, I was in like 2015, The Ballad of Baby Doe, that is yeah. not necessarily contemporary, but they do have a, a cult following of doe heads who go <laughs> everywhere around the country, anywhere it's performed to just see this work. And yeah. in that way, the, the opera has to have different iterations so that it can be performed in multiple places. And they have a foundation that funds that. So wow. it's, it's just for the longevity of the, of the works and, and also for audition purposes some of i know that there's richard daniel poor one of his operas yes. and he has basically shrunken it into a three-piece movement mm -hmm. for a uh, voice and orchestra so that more and more these pieces can go out into the world and be performed and maybe the right person will hear it and pick it up yeah. and i think that's brilliant Speaking of, of Richard, L.A. Opera's own Susan Graham is this week recording a song cycle that he wrote for her. I think it's called A Standing Witness, and it's, it's actually becoming even more and more poignant with all of the developments of the last few years. Each one is a, a moment of a meditation on, I suppose, uh, different moments of American history with the wow. Statue of Liberty being the witness of each of these chapters. Good, bad, funny, terrifying. And it's a question that asks where we're going uh, as an American society. And, and in some ways, I suppose the piece itself is a dialogue with where we're going musically as well. American opera is live and well, and that makes yeah. me very, very happy. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think I think an important thing about it, and it's true of every country's operatic tradition, but it's not monolithic. There isn't just one flavor. Yeah. And uh, I like to tell people, if, if you didn't like that one, go see something else. It's true. <laughs> there's so much out there. And every year there's it's growing. And that's really encouraging. We need new living, breathing works. I do have a very important question for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you were going to tell someone some works that they could listen to, to become acquainted with the great American works, we've just spoken about so many. We really have, but there, you're right. There are some, do not miss this piece. Yeah. Um, do not miss Porgy and Bess. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Um, don't miss the golden age of musicals, even though they don't seem like operas. They're really important and they're, they're a connection to the early stuff uh, to now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, these are my own personal taste, but I think I'm right. Um, <laughs> don't miss the operas of Daniel Catan. Take your pick. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's a Mexican composer. Mexican-American composer, uh, but uh, his approach to kind of a modern take on the grand opera tradition, I find very moving. Florencia, which we mentioned earlier, is a great piece. And uh, just because I loved it so much and the story felt so relevant to me, I, I think Fire Shut Up in My Bones is really an American masterpiece. And I yeah. hope it has a long life and I hope we see a lot of it. I think that we will. How about well, you? I would say that nobody should miss The Ghost of Versailles. Honestly, I really love it's it. It's brilliant. It's, it's brilliant. brilliant. It's brilliant. I know people have mixed feelings about it, but I think it's one of the most entertaining American operas out there. Mm -hmm. um, and Vanessa, because yeah. it's just stunning. Not that you'll find an opera, <laughs> not a place to watch it, but if you can, it's totally worth it. Um, Believe it or not, I, Vanessa was one of the first pieces I ever got to be a part of working on professionally at Des Moines Metro Opera. About 20 years ago, they did a Vanessa. And, it, and actually, LA Opera has presented Vanessa in our past as well. Bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know, what are you most excited about for the 2022-2023 LAO season? Hands down, Omar. Not just because it's new, but it's really exciting. And I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but one of the other great poll quotes from Michael at that Q&A was that he said, genre is a construct. And because Rhiannon is a folk musician herself and, and operatically trained, but very gifted, both of them are, you'll mm -hmm. hear all kinds of musical influences in this score. And it's, it's a thing of great beauty. Having said that, though, we've got a ton of great uh, standard rep. And the Lucia that we start the season with is also super interesting. It's a co-production mm -hmm. with the Met. There are certain video effects that I won't talk about too much, but the whole yeah. piece is updated from 16th, 17th century Scotland to contemporary America. And the directors said, and the designers said that they were aiming for some 
nondescript Rust Belt America, a town that is past its prime. And mm -hmm. uh, I went with my husband to see the Met transmission of it. And I had read some mixed reviews. Some people saw it without a very open mind. And I kind of braced myself in case I didn't like it. And I looked at Evan partway through act one and I said, this is really relevant. And he was like, it almost feels too relevant because it, it's speaking to fundamental emotional truths that are just as true today as they were at the time of the piece being written and also at the time of the original source material being written. Wonderful. Yeah. That is very exciting. Sounds like it's not to be missed. Yeah, it's a beautiful production. I'm very excited for this. I'm also very excited for Tosca. Oh yeah, that's, that's great. To. That's great. <laughs> you know, can't help a, a Puccini standard. For sure. <laughs> well, thanks for asking all these questions and hopefully I was able to give a little bit of insight to how I think about American opera, but I, it's always a great time to get to be in conversation with you. Both enjoyable, but also informative. Well, thank you. Tickets to Omar and the rest of LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.